Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you for your grace and mercy that are new every day. We thank you for your cleansing power. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. We pray that your Spirit would speak to our hearts this morning, build our faith, and our surrender to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when uh, the time was up yesterday, we were thanking God that when we surrender to Christ, he comes to dwell in our hearts. And we were praising God that when that happens, the Holy Spirit has access to the inner being and begins to work his transforming grace to remold and recreate us and to restore the image of God that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. The day before yesterday, we focused on the Spirit's fruit of peace and patience. Then we started talking about kindness and goodness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, that love, the first of the Spirit's fruit, which is foundational to all the rest, is patient and kind, not arrogant or rude. I looked in uh, Webster's Dictionary for a definition of kindness and goodness, but I wasn't satisfied with what I found in Webster's. And then, as I thought about it, I realized that what we really need is not a definition of goodness and kindness. We need a description. Something that's more vivid, like a picture. And that would make an indelible impression on our minds. Not just on our minds, but on our hearts. So where to find such a description? Of course, you find it in the Word of God. So in Matthew chapter 20, the first 16 verses, we find a perfect description of kindness and goodness. It was, it's the story about a man who was kind and good. <clears throat> Matthew 20. It's always fascinated me by the way it starts. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is light. a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will pay you, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. The last hired up to the first hired. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, the last ones hired, came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought, because they had seen that, the last received a denarius, they thought they would receive more. but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Fascinating story. Now, a lot of people would say that that's not the way to run a business. But that's not the point Jesus was making in telling this story. 
And if they had had a labor union back then, they would have made a lot of trouble. Jesus was talking about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And what better way than to describe, describe it by drawing a picture of it that would not be forgotten. The rest, of course, grumbled and complained. You see, to them, the issue was fairness, not generosity or kindness or goodness. Verse 2 says, after agreeing with the labors for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. In other words, they said, we'll work for that amount of money. Was the owner of the vineyard fair? Of course. That's what they had agreed on. He wasn't being unfair. But he was being kind and generous to those who worked only one hour. Now, you know, some people might think that he was foolish, stupid. But was he? Is it stupid to be kind and generous and good? See, this occurred in its reality. In the story, it isn't just about that. The kingdom. You accept the Lord when you're 11, or when you accept the Lord when you're 71, or you get a different heaven. Now you get the same, don't you? And so, I mean, that's where we encompass salvation. Now he said, when you accept the Lord at 71, you get the same gift as a person who accepts the Lord when they're 10 years old. Anyway, today, these people would organize to put a stop to such unfairness, foolishness, and stupidity from their point of view. But he was not being unfair because he had negotiated with them, as verse 2 says. And later on, he reminds them in verse 13, I'm doing you no wrong. Because you agreed with me for a denarius. That was our contract. I'm honoring our contract. Take what belongs to you. But you have a right to. In other words, they really had no complaint. They were jealous.
to Jesus, kindness and goodness was the issue. He had a lesson that he wanted to teach his followers who were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so he tells this story. Ellen White has a very interesting comment on this. Christ's object lessons page 397, she said, those who came into the vineyard at the 11th hour were thankful for an opportunity to work. They would have been satisfied with the one denarius or even less. because they were thankful for the opportunity. She goes on, <clears throat> excuse me, their hearts were full of gratitude to the one who had accepted them. And when at the close of the day, the householder paid them for a full day's work, they were greatly surprised. Can you imagine? You know, oh my, can't believe it. I only worked an hour. They knew they had not earned such wages, she said. And the kindness expressed in the countenance of their employer filled them with joy. They never forgot the goodness of the householder or the generous compensation they had received. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, A man who is kind benefits himself. but a cruel man hurts himself. Why is that true? You tell me. A kind man benefits himself. Is that the motivation for kindness? to get some benefit? No. That's a good fringe benefit. Pardon? That's a good fringe benefit. Good fringe benefit, yes. We showed kindness to a couple of guys that had just gotten out of jail. And uh, they feel like they haven't been able to repay us. And we almost can't stop them from doing good deeds for us because they would have been back on the wrong path had somebody not intervened in their behalf. And uh, they mow my lawn every week and I, I can't even go get a lawnmower and do it myself. They won't let me because they're so grateful for what we've done for them. 
So it wasn't my intent. So what you're saying is that kindness comes back to us. Pardon? They also will be kind to others because of what has happened to them. That's right. That's right. Also, there's an immediate benefit, and that's peace. It brings peace to your heart. If you do the opposite thing, cruel to your or ignoring somebody, there's no peace there. You have this feeling of, of unrest, selfish unrest. Yeah, she said the immediate. What word did you use? Benefit. Benefit is peace to the kind person. You feel peaceful about it because you know you did the right thing. You did a good thing. Joy, too. Peace. Brother has his hands on I was thinking that kindness is good for one's mental health. Good for one's mental health. Why do you say that? Because you're treating yourself the way God wants you to. But if you hate, you're pouring poisons into your system. It is a truth that it's more blessed to give than to receive. How true that is. Proverbs 21.21 says, Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Have you ever heard somebody say about some, someone else, he or she is a good person? I think that's probably the highest compliment anybody could ever receive. Does kindness break down barriers? Yeah. You know, when I was growing up in Waukegan, Illinois, between Milwaukee and Chicago on the shore of Lake Michigan, we never locked our doors. Didn't have to. Nowadays, you, you don't dare leave home without locking your door. He says in rural America, you can still leave your door unlocked. Well, anyway, I remember those days. So, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. But it seems that Jesus was trying to illustrate something else. Not what we might call the selfish reward promised in this verse, but something that Ellen White captures in her comment. The reaction and the response of those that benefit from the kindness and the goodness. They, they would have been satisfied with what they had earned, even one hour's pay. 
And they were surprised. Astonished at such generosity. But the overwhelming kindness filled them with joy, it says. You see, there was something that was more important than the wage. There are things in life that are more important than money. But we so often live as though money were the most, the most important thing. This is precisely why I think that uh, God's request of a tithe is a test, test of our faith. Every time we receive wages, we have to deal with the question, which is more important, my money or my relationship with God? The older I get, the more I become aware that everything I have, every single thing that I have is a gift of God. They never forgot the source of this sheer goodness that came their way. And that's the point that Jesus wanted the ones he was speaking to and he wants us to get from that story. And in his great sermon, Sermon on the Mount, by the way, if you read the Sermon on the Mount carefully all the way through, you will be amazed to discover the whole thing when you get past the Beatitudes. The whole thing talks about Christian behavior and lifestyle. The whole thing. There's not a word in there about justification by faith. Let me just read the, the divisions. Talks about what to do about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation of love your enemies, giving to the needy. Then comes the Lord's Prayer. Then fasting. Then laying up treasures in heaven. Not being anxious. Judging others. Ask and it will be given. The golden rule. A tree and its fruit. 
Build your house on the rock. That's what it talks about. Jesus' most famous sermon is all about what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven and be a part of that environment. It's amazing. And he puts it like this in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God gets the credit. God is glorified when his people live that way. And in John 15, verse 16, he says, I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Notice he doesn't say, and make fruit. He says, bear it. That your fruit should abide. In other words, that the impact and the influence of the way you live will stay, remain, and continue so that, he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, it's your light. But who lights your light? He says, let your light shine before others. It's your light, but who, who, who lights it? Jesus said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, verse 36 reads, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons, daughters of light. It's the Spirit's fruit, but when he produces that fruit in you, it becomes your fruit. Let your light shine. Anyway, light reminds me of an interesting story. When I was a student at Northern Michigan University, well, I got to go back a little bit. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I didn't know what I was going to do. My father said, you're going to learn how to lay bricks, so I did and I was earning pretty good money. And uh, I had, when I was in high school, my, I met a teacher, an art teacher, and I took his art class. Uh, he befriended me and I needed a friend. And I was attracted to this man. He was a good man and he managed to uh, awaken in me 
uh, a talent for art. And so I developed the ambition to become an illustrator. And so my plan was to save enough money laying brick so that I could attend the Art Institute in Chicago and take their courses and become an illustrator. And so I developed my gift and I learned how to paint and draw and so on. Until the Lord got a hold of me and completely changed the direction of my life and my creative abilities were rechanneled from art to sermonizing and writing and so on. When I was a student at Northern, we attended St. Mark's Lutheran Church, which was right across the street from the campus of Northern Michigan University. And when the pastor there, his name was John Hattula, Finnish, when he learned that I was preparing for ministry, he invited me to preach my very first sermon I preached in that church. I remember I worked a month on that sermon. And I practiced it. And when I practiced it, it took me between 20 and 30 minutes to preach the sermon. But when I got up in the pulpit to preach that sermon, I was so nervous, my legs were actually shaking like this. And my mouth was dry. I talked so fast, I was done in 10 minutes. <laughs> and I remember the pastor was sitting in the last pew on the left side. And I quit, I said amen, and I sat down. And I, I looked over there, and he got up slowly from his seat, and he started walking slowly down. It was a long aisle, slowly down the aisle toward the front. And as he walked down the aisle, he put his hand on the end of every pew as he was walking down. And I, I thought that was a little odd. But later, I realized what he was doing. Because when he got up to the front, he went to the pulpit and he proceeded to preach for 15 minutes. While he was walking down, he was preparing a sermon, a message to fill in. Well, that whole experience and worshiping in that church was such a blessing for us. I decided that I would paint a picture. The, the building, the church building was brand new. It had just been built a year or so before that. And I decided to paint a portrait of the, of the church building, which turned out, by the way, to be my last painting. I never did another painting. And uh, we were living in a 16-foot trailer, and there was no room you know, to paint a large painting in there. So one of the church members graciously let me paint the picture at their house which was just a couple blocks down the street <clears throat> from the church. And uh, it was a, a picture of this brand new church building. And it was very dark, clouds 
and light shining out from the windows of the church on the snow. And I called the picture the light in the darkness. And I gave it, I gave the painting to the congregation as a gift, just for, as a thanks for the fellowship that we had enjoyed for two years and the, the opportunity to preach there because he invited me to preach more than once. Well, about four months ago, I got an email from a Lutheran pastor that I have maintained a friendship with over the years. And he said that St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Marquette is closing its doors on July 31. They have so few members they can't afford to run the church anymore. So immediately I thought, what about my painting? It's been hanging there in the entryway for 59 years. I never saw it again until about four years ago when there was a, a meeting there to which I was invited and Shirley and I went and I was able to see it for the first time since 1957. So I started to inquire about that. What's going to happen to my painting? Well, thank God the church board voted after I began to inquire. They voted to return it to me. There's going to be a reunion of people that used to go to that church, belong to that church on July 30. That's the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to skip church in Besmer on that day, and I'm, we're going to go over there because I want to I wanna meet these people again. Some of them I, I haven't seen since the 50s and received my painting back, and I'll be able to tell them this story because the people that are there now, they don't know all this. Anyway, it's about that wide and about so high and my wife's first question is, where are you going to put it? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know. What am I going to do with it? And finally, one day, I woke up real early in the morning, and I was praying about this, and the Lord gave me the answer. I'm going to give it as a gift for the Michigan Conference new office building in gratitude for the privilege of serving in this conference. With the exception of three years I was in the Philippines, we have served in the Michigan Conference for my whole time in the Adventist ministry. And I think that would be an appropriate thing to do because it symbolizes the fact that the church is the light in the darkness, not a light, as though it was one of many, but the light in the darkness. So I can't wait for July 30. It's going to be quite a day. It's interesting that this happens, but it does. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when we're good and kind, like Jesus to other people, 
The Father gets the glory. Let me ask you now, before we pause for just a minute, does the tree identify the fruit or does the fruit identify the tree? Yeah, the fruit reveals what kind of a tree it came from. You can see a lot of trees, like in, around the Berrien Springs area, there are a lot of orchards, you know, and you can see these trees, but you don't know what kind of trees they are until the fruit ripens. And you know, that's an apple tree. It has apples on it. It's a peach tree. It has peaches on it. You don't get peaches from an apple tree. So the fruit identifies the tree. That's why when we have the fruit of the Spirit, God gets the glory. Because the fruit identifies the tree, the source, which is God himself. Okay, we move on. Some time ago, I, I heard a news report that the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Was, was considering making the sharing of their faith on the part of military personnel a court-martial offense. They were thinking about it. And it was also reported that this thinking was attributed to strong pressure from atheist organizations in our society, which referred to the sharing of faith as treason and also as a threat to our national security. And when I read that, I sat there and think, thinking about it, I thought, whatever happened to religious liberty? Whatever happened to the freedom of speech? Both of which are guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States. The First Amendment, which reads like this. This is what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. Those are the exact words of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Now, what exactly does the First Amendment prohibit? What it prohibits is the, the it prohibits the Congress 
of the United States, the lawmaking body, from making any law that would establish a particular religion or church and that would impose a religion on the American people. That's what it prohibits. It prohibits the lawmaking body from doing that. And it also prohibits the Congress of the United States from making any law that would prohibit, stop any citizen from exercising or practicing his or her faith. In other words, it said, the government of the United States cannot restrict you or prohibit you from practicing your faith. And that is further reinforced in that Congress is prohibited from making any law that would deprive any citizen from exercising his faith. And exercising his freedom of speech. Sharing his faith. In other words, the restriction of the First Amendment is on Congress, not on you and me. It sets us free. It restricts the government from messing around with us. Now, there's people that want to get rid of that. The Constitution makes it clear that the Congress cannot, the government cannot establish a religion and then force you by law to adopt that religion. And thank God for the First Amendment. Nor can the government by law force you not to practice the religion you have adopted. And it also the government cannot, by law, force you to refrain from speaking about the religion you practice. In other words, we have the freedom to share our faith, to pass out literature, to do public evangelism without any hindrance. Now, th this is very important because this is what is meant by religious liberty. the right and the freedom not only to choose a religion, but to practice it without any hindrance or restriction. The framers of the Constitution recognized the value of religion in providing the moral framework of American society. And in America, Religion has primarily referred to the Christian faith, although not only that, but 
and today the specific target of secular forces are Christians and Christian churches. Because they are considered by some folks to be troublesome and reactionary and even dangerous. That's why this kind of thinking was going on, you know, let's, in the military, let's make sharing the faith a court-martial offense, you know, because they, they think that it's dangerous. Secularists, you see, believe that our country would be better off if limitations were imposed on Christians inhibiting and restricting our influence on public life. And they hide this behind the euphemism, separation of church and state. And you cannot find those words in the First Amendment. You cannot find the words separation of church and state in the entire Constitution. You know where they came from? a letter that Thomas Jefferson had written to a friend in which he used the phrase separation of church and state. But they're not in the Constitution. And so what these folks really mean is the imposition of silence on the voices of Christians when they use the phrase separation of church and state. What they want to do is impose silence on you and me. Shut up. We don't like what you believe. We don't like what you stand for. And they wouldn't hesitate to shut us up by law if they could. And by the way, this is why the Supreme Court is so important. Because in our setup, in our system, it's the Supreme Court that decides and declares whether a law that's passed by Congress is or is not constitutional. They want to silence us, these folks, because especially when we say what we say contradicts the secular view of life and the secular view of morality. In other words, they don't like the biblical values that we hold and they want us to shut up. Why? Because they want a secular morality to dominate and rule our nation without any inhibitions or interference. 
one of the results of this kind of philosophy are, are the rampant abortions that we have today. How many babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade was passed by Congress? Something like 50 million. And many of them what they call partial birth abortion. In other words, the, the child, the infant, is a viable human being, almost near birth. Do you think God is going to hold, hold our nation responsible for this, ultimately? We believe that human life begins at inception, not at birth. And when you see ultrasound pictures, you know, of a developing fetus, you can only stand in awe at what you see. Doesn't take many weeks before you see perfectly formed little tiny fingers, a nose on the face, toes. Anyway, I could go on and on about that, but I won't. It's, it's horrible anyway. You see pictures? I just recently got a picture of a fully developed child dead curled up in a bucket, aborted. And at the heart of all of this is the fundamental question concerning whether or not religion has not only a legitimate but a vital role to play in public life, a role that the framers of the Constitution recognized and wanted to protect. Thank God for the Constitution. As the Word of God is the foundation of our faith, so the Constitution is the foundation of our nation and our government. But it's just a piece of paper. You can see it at the National Archives in Washington. Have you been there? Have you ever been there? You can see the Constitution. The original signatures on it. John Hancock's is the biggest one. It's just a piece of paper, but it is as strong as you and I are. 
the strength of it depends on the citizen. If we're not faithful to the precepts of the Bible, what then? If we're not faithful to the precepts of our own constitution, what's that? What then? Now, what I have described, you know, you might say, what does this have to do with the fruit of the Spirit? Well, what I have described is the national, social, cultural context in which we are living today as Christian believers. This is reality, and it's serious. And these are the kind of things that we should be thinking about when any election comes up, local or national or whatever. How do we, as confessing Christians, relate to it? How do we respond? Does God fortify us with what we need to cope and stay true to our faith? with the contemporary scene in which we're living today as the context and the background. Let's read that list of the fruit of the Spirit again that presents the spiritual characteristics that give evidence of a living, believing faith. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow, self-control. And it, then it ends, against such things there is no law. And remember, these are the Spirit's fruits. We cannot achieve them. We can only receive them. But when the Holy Spirit produces them in us, they become ours. And that's reality too. The fruit identifies the tree. He produces his fruit in us and empowers us to use them. We can depend on them. They will sustain us. They will make us strong in the controversy between good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. And that's precisely why Jesus said, speaking first of false prophets in Matthew 7, 16, the Sermon on the Mount, he said that they are recognized by their fruits. And then using the analogy of a healthy tree that bears good fruit, as opposed to a diseased tree that bears bad fruit, he made it clear that the world is able to recognize the fruitful by their fruit. 
not by our words, but by our fruit, what we produce, what impact we have on our communities, on our nation, on our world. I want to talk a little bit about faithfulness and gentleness. Listen to these vivid examples of biblical faithfulness from Acts of the Apostles, page 575. Or she, she, she writes, quote, In all ages, God's appointed witnesses have exposed themselves to reproach and persecution for the truth's sake. Joseph was maligned and persecuted because he preserved his virtue and integrity. David, the chosen messenger of God, was hunted like a beast of prey by his enemies. Daniel was cast into a den of lions because he was true to his allegiance to heaven. Job was deprived of his worldly possessions and so afflicted in body that he was abhorred by his relatives and friends, yet he maintained his integrity. Jeremiah could not be deterred from speaking the words God had given him to speak, and his testimony so outraged the king and princes that he was cast into a loathsome pit. Stephen was stoned because he preached Christ and him crucified. Paul was imprisoned beaten with rods, stoned, and finally put to death because he was a faithful messenger for God to the Gentiles. And John was banished to the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And she goes on. These examples of human steadfastness bear witness to the faithfulness of God's promises, of his abiding presence and sustaining grace. They testify to the power of faith to withstand the powers of this world. It is the work of faith to rest in God in the darkest hour to feel however sorely tried and tempest-tossed that our Father is at the helm. The eye of faith alone can look beyond the things of time to estimate aright the worth of the eternal riches.
You know, I, I had to wrestle hard with the concept of the spirit of prophecy. Baptism was not a problem for me. It was all during my Lutheran ministry. I had questions about infant baptism. I baptized many babies during those 10 years, but I always felt uneasy about it. And the reason was simple. I, I couldn't find any example in the New Testament of the baptism of babies. So baptism was not a problem for me. I was happy to submit to baptism by immersion at Pioneer Memorial Church. But the spirit of prophecy was a little different. I really had to wrestle with that. And you know what it was that convinced me? Just reading what she had written. The more I read statements like this, the more I began to hear the, the ring, the sound of divine truth. And I think that's why a lot of folks don't want to read Ellen White. But it's convicting, just like the Bible. And it's truth. And it's up to date. It's up to date. It deals with the problems that we're dealing with. Yeah, it deals. It's, it deals with the problems we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, the message, the messages of the three angels in Revelation which not only identified the mission of the remnant people of God, but also described the nature of the times during which that mission is to be accomplished, ends like this, Revelation 14, 12. You know that verse. Here is a call for the patient endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus puts the two together. Keeping the commandments and having faith in Jesus are not separated. So the situation that we face, because we are living in the end time, calls for endurance. Patient endurance. In other words, stick it out. Persevere. Unwavering steadfastness. Don't give up or give in to the pressures. And it calls for the fruit of the Spirit called gentleness. Wait, there's some folks in our church now that are stirring up some difficulty. I hear, I haven't seen it myself, but I hear reports disrupting churches and 
over the whole idea of the Trinity. Do you, you know about this going on? Well, how do we deal with that? Be gentle with them, but don't weaken. I thought to myself, what would I say if somebody came in and interrupted Sabbath school class and started to rant and rave about Trinity? And uh, call us ignorant or stupid because we believe in the Trinity. And I decided that what I would do is wait till they're finished and then say, brother, sister, you're not being very Christ-like today. It calls for the fruit of the Spirit called gentleness. The world we're living in today. Not anger, but compassion. God's church has always been in trouble. Always, from the very beginning. Because its destiny is to stand for righteousness in the struggle between good and evil. Till the close of time, says Ellen White, there will be a conflict between the church of God and those who are under the control of evil angels. Acts of the Apostles 2.19. But the promise of God is that Psalm 31, 23, the Lord preserves the faithful. The faithful will bear, will hear, will hear Jesus say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. One who is faithful in very little, Luke 16.10, is also faithful in much. We can thank God for the fruit of the Spirit. These qualities and these characteristics are just what we need in times of spiritual struggle and conflict. He produces them in us so that they can be used by his people in the great controversy. Edmund Burke, a British philosopher and member of parliament, once wrote this, quote, Men of intemperate minds, that is, people who, have, who lack moderation, cannot be free. Their passions, passions are usually unreasonable and beyond uh, self-control, their passions forge 
their fetters or their chains. Was he right? Yeah. Now let's conclude with this statement by Ellen White from Prophets and Kings, page 571. She says, but though the conflict is a ceaseless one, none are left to struggle alone. Angels help and protect those who walk humbly with God. Never will our Lord betray one who trusts in him. As his children draw near to him for protection from evil, in pity and love, he lifts up for them a standard against the enemy. Touch them not, he says, for they are mine. I have graven them on the palms of my hands, nail-pierced hands. Can I have a volunteer to pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the lessons of spiritual gifts and fruits of the Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit to abide in our hearts, transform and change our lives. It's not just Christians, but as what Christ like as you can possibly make us. And we just pray that you will continue to work in our hearts. We've got a lot of things that seem to stand in the way, but we thank you for the vision that we are getting of how to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. So we want to thank you for this lesson. Please be with us as we go throughout this day at camp meeting. Turn us back tomorrow in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.